Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the One Shop Movement Podcast, where we dive deep into the stories of business people, entrepreneurs, people that are out there making it happen. And today, I'm super excited for our guest, whose name is David Bartlett. For those that don't know David Bartlett, he was a former Premier of a state of Australia, Tasmanian State uh, Premier there, spent uh, over 10 years in politics, implementing change, but he's also come from a different background where he spent a lot of time in advisory around technology. He's been, in the last 10 years, in the private sector, in tech companies, sitting on boards, keynote speaking, providing advice, and our conversation is quite profound, all things business and politics coming from two totally different angles. So sit back and enjoy this week's episode with David Bartlett. Okay, everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the One Shop Movement podcast, where we dive deep into the stories of entrepreneurs, business people, just anyone that's out there with an amazing story to tell. And today we have a fellow Tasmanian on on uh, the show, and uh, this guy here has really done it all in business, uh, politics. Uh, he's got an amazing story to tell. He's actually the former. Premier of Tasmania, who was in politics, you know, a while ago now, left that industry. But he sits on boards. Uh, he's a keynote speaker. He's, you know, really helped mentoring people and giving people guidance. He's really heavily involved in the digital um, space. Uh, so we're going to talk a bit about digital tech innovation, which really excites me as well. Leadership. Uh, if you've been a premier of a state, you know you need to know a little bit about leadership. So uh, welcome, David, to the show. Well, great to be with you, Craig, and thanks for having me uh, along. I love the work you're doing, and um, it's great to be able to make a small contribution to it, mate. No worries. And look, I always like to invite uh, the guests to really fill out their story and what inspired them and the journey that they've uh, chosen. And yours is obviously quite interesting where you've been down a political laneway, but also in the commercial laneway and an advisory lane. So yeah, where did it start? How did you get into your different roles? And love to hear about your story. Yeah, well, from a personal point of view, I'm a a Tasmanian um, born and bred. And in fact, I was... um, born to a uh, 16-year-old mother in 1968 and put up for adoption and was ended up fostered out to a family for the first 18 years of my life. And therefore, I was actually a ward of the state of Tasmania for the first 18 years of my life. And I always liked the symmetry of, you know, the state was in fact my guardian uh, for 18 years effectively. And then as Premier of Tasmania, I like to think I was the guardian of the state for, uh, for three or so years that I was in that job. So... I, um, I, I grew up with a family in Hobart um, and um, kind of followed in their footsteps more than, in, more than um, necessarily following my own passion into um, technology and did a Bachelor of Computer Science. Um, and I like to say now I'm kind of um, about nine years into my third career. My first career was after graduating with a computer science and pure maths degree, was very much in the tech and telecommunications sector. You know, worked in a few startups, worked for Telstra, um, and you know, was living and working in Melbourne uh, for much of the '90s. But kind of had a passion to come back to my own home state. Uh, wanted to come home, 
came home in the sort of mid to late 90s and, and really found a lot of frustration um, with that move that kind of Tasmania hadn't moved on really and particularly hadn't really got itself, I think, you know, had, had been heavily invested in sort of dig it up, chop it down industries and had not invested enough perhaps in innovation, science, technology and so on. So I got a real passion for that and that was really what led me into politics, my second career of 10 years in, in politics and um, spent four years as Minister for Education and skills, uh, a couple of years as Minister for Innovation, Science and Technology, which is obviously you know, a big passion. And then three years um, as Premier. Um, stood down from that, I kind of, you know, they say the greatest luxury in politics is choosing the time of your own departure. But if the truth be told, I, I chose the time of my own departure, but the Tasmanian people probably would have thrown me out a couple of years after that if I'd given them a chance. Uh, so I'm really nine years out of politics now and I've built a kind of portfolio um, career really over that nine years. I'm a director and co-founder of um, and chair of a number of tech companies, some fast growing, some during these strange COVID times we're living in um, are having some struggles. So we're we're dealing with some real challenges in, in one of them at least. Um, I, um, I do a lot of keynote and conference speaking and largely that's in the digital and innovation space. Although sometimes people want me to talk about politics and leadership and so on as well. Um, I have for the last four years uh, for love job, been very passionate about uh, bringing NBL basketball back to Tasmania. So I've been working really in a volunteer capacity, but leading a um, bid to bring NBL back to Tasmania. We haven't had an NBL team here for 25 years and basketball is really my um, sport of passion. Mm -hmm. um, and thankfully, just um, three weeks ago, we had an announcement by Larry Kessman and the NBL and um, Tasmania will have its first um, team in the National Basketball League starting October 2021 um, for the first time in 26 years. So I'm pretty excited about that. And then I'm kind of involved in, um, you know, a couple of not-for-profits, I uh, do a bit of consulting work, uh, do a little bit of advisory work around influence in government and a bit of advisory work around innovation in sort of large corporates and, and so on as well. So I've got a really nice mixed um, view. My wife always says to me, you know, you like that because no one really knows where you are and what you're doing. And I kind of do like that. I like... Um, you know, for the first time in my life over this career anyway, not really uh, well, being my own boss and being deep in industry and, and business and really sort of charting my own course, including a new, just during this COVID time, a new startup um, for profit that I'm doing with a couple of ex-NBL players in the basketball space as well, but really sports technology um, space in basketball. So yeah, I'm, um, I'm thoroughly uh, enjoying life at the moment and um, really feel like um, that intersection of government and innovation in business is a really often a clash of cultures, mm. but it's been a great learning journey for me through, through those, that clash, I guess. Yeah, and it is a question that I do have that I will ask sort of a little bit uh, later on around that because it is when you go commercial government, like your decision and the way you think through things would be quite different. The way, you know, the perspective on different situations and circumstances, I'm sure. And um, I'm obviously a, a proud Tasmanian and I, I make that uh, well known. And I probably... 
I should be putting my hand out to the government for all the people that I've sent there because I had five fitness clubs and everyone that used to uh, train under me. I say, you've got to go. This is your 10-day holiday to Tasmania. And I, I would have sent, uh, and I actually even say that in the book, I would have sent hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of tourism to Tasmania over the years. So, um, you know, I'm a very much a proud Tasmanian. So can see why you headed back down there and I do remember sitting in the Derwin Entertainment Centre when basketball was uh, a big thing back in Tassie so it's pretty exciting and I just recently interviewed a former NBL player um, who played for the Melbourne Tigers for 20 years uh, recently as well so I have a bit of an interest in that uh, too. So uh, I guess um, in politics what drove you to going to politics was that sort of something that was always there because for me personally I've been in you know self-funded and commercial my entire life effectively even though I'm an engineer um, I have never really had an interest in that type of pathway what led you down there yeah well I was probably always interested in particularly Tasmanian politics um, you know I grew up in a family that um, was I guess you would describe them as sort of Christian conservatives. Um, so they had particularly strong sort of political views that I grew up with. But then really my political awakening was around the sort of Franklin Dam debate in Tasmania where we had a teacher, I went to Turner High School and a teacher who's subsequently sadly passed away, but he was very much you know, anti um, building that dam. And my, my foster father was very pro building that dam. So I kind of got caught in the intersection of these interesting debates and and that really was the sort of formation of my political views, quite different to my, the family I grew up with, I must say, um, and um, almost a rebellion against them in some ways. Um, but, um, but really, um, I, I never really had an into politics. I wasn't a member of a political party at all until I got back to Tasmania and I worked as um, a CIO in the Department of Health for a couple of years and then the government changed in 1998 and Jim Bacon became Premier and he rang me up and I didn't know him at all, but he'd heard of me um, and um, asked me if I would set up this innovation and technology industry development unit within the, his Department of State Development. And that was really my passion. I've been talking about it, this a lot, I guess. Uh, so I went and set that up and I reported to a board and the board uh, was chaired by the late and great Senator John Button, who was a um, Minister for Industry and Innovation in the Hawke and Keating governments. And he became a bit of a mentor to me. And um, I remember very clearly one day, because we used to drive around Tasmania, sort of looking at innovative industry and where could we provide, you know, grant support or other support to sort of fast growing tech and science based companies. Um, and I was bitching and moaning to him one day on the drive about these bloody politicians. They don't understand it. They're all, you know, dig it up, chop it down. And they don't get what the sort of future um, business um, world is about. Um, and he said, well, son, if you think you can do better, uh, mm -hmm. join the Labor Party and get yourself elected. Uh, so the next day I joined the Labor Party. I got myself elected about a year and a half after that. And within about eight years of that, uh, conversation. I was Premier of Tasmania and um, and sadly, uh, John Button passed away just five weeks before I was Deputy Premier at the time and he passed away just five weeks before I became Premier. But right up until that time, he was still writing me kind of handwritten notes of advice 
um, in this kind of, uh, on these, on these little A5 pages that I've still collected and, um, and one of them I've got framed actually, because I love it so much, you know, so I still got this kind of mentoring, um, from him and really that's, that was it. Um, it was just right. I, I love this place. I've come back to Tasmania. I love it. Um, and he basically put the challenge out there. If you think, if you want to change it, you can't just sit around bitching and moaning. You've got to get in and have a go. So I did. Yeah, and I, you just uh, as you were talking about tech and innovation, my first job uh, and Jim Bacon, you know, effectively did have influence in this situation at the techno park there in Hobart. I actually won one of I think seven scholarships to work at uh, the Centre for Precision Technology, which was, yeah, that was um, a, a thing there, and you know something happened around there, and ended up going to university full time. But that was a five-year program, and it was it was really around that time and tech and innovation. I can remember it being quite big. Um, the one the one thing I do remember from Jim Bacon and his politics, even though I'd left the state by then, was he. Um, smoking become banned in eating areas effectively in Tassie before anyone else and that was um, something you know I guess yeah do you want to you were in politics and want to talk through that you know, sadly Jim Bacon um, died of lung cancer uh, and that was lung cancer he got out of basically a lifetime of being a very heavy smoker um, and uh, he uh, yes uh, I know you know, he had many dying wishes and he had a lot of influence on a lot of people, including me. Um, he was also a bit of a mentor to me. Uh, and um, one of his dying wishes was that, you know, uh, whatever we could do to stop people <laughs> taking up the habit of smoking, uh, you know, he was very supportive of. And, and he, he, a bit like, um, I think that sort of famous Yul Brynner quote about just don't smoke kind of thing. And, um, you know, he was, he was very clear that um, it was a lifetime of smoking that really took his life from him so mm. yes and just the last one on I guess the politics in your journey there what uh um as someone that wasn't in the state uh w was a big challenge for you as premier of the state because you know you're as a politician you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't sometimes so I always like to tell the story I um I became premier on May the 28th uh, of 2008 and um, was really riding high in the polls and feeling pretty good about what I was doing and things were going pretty well. Um, you know, started to believe my own hype and think, oh, I've got this job nailed, no worries. <laughs> and then on August the 8th, I, um, I had the uh, Deputy Commissioner of Police come and visit me with the DPP to tell me they were going to arrest the police commissioner that day. For mm. this, this is all on the public record now, of course. I had my Minister for Economic Development um, attempt to take her own life because she was about to um, be exposed for having an affair with her driver. Uh, and on that day also, the, the collapse of um, the share price of Babcock and Brown, who were building a, a um, gas-fired power station on the East Tamer, and Tasmania had been in drought for eight years leading up to that because we're hydro-powered. We, we would have run out of power if we didn't complete this and essentially that share collapse, we had to take over the building of it, um, spend $450 million on building it ourselves, the government. Um, and essentially um, that collapse signaled the start of the global financial crisis. So three months into my premiership, which was going pretty well <laughs> until then, um, on one day, uh, everything just changed. And in lots of ways, 
you know, the rest of my premiership was um, really governed by the things that happened. You know, we had the first contractionary budget in for Tasmania in 12 years. You know, our Commonwealth transfers, which is really makes up two thirds of your state budget, really um, dropped by about a billion dollars uh, overnight. Um, and so suddenly, you know, this uh, Premier who really wanted to be, I really wanted to be about the future, new innovation, investment in education, particularly I was passionate about. Um, suddenly we had no money to do anything uh, and we had a fair bit of scandal kind of running around the uh, uh, then sort of 10 year old government because I mean, Jim Bacon and then Paul Lennon as Premier and then I was the third Premier of that, that government. So, so I guess I, I really discovered through that period um, how challenging government can really be. Uh, and um, that actually, you know, unlocking um, the things you really want to achieve when you're really living in a constrained environment, constrained both by sort of media and scandal and, you know, the politics of the day, and then, of course, constrained very much by our own state budget through that period. Um, yeah, it was changed the journey, you know, we're often say we're all in politics, we're all creatures of history. You kind of inherit what you inherit and you, you leave what you leave and, you know, you, um, you, do, you make the best of the, the circumstances you're handed in lots of ways. Mm. And just um, in regards to leadership, like, you know, a lot of people on here are trying to grow as individuals and become leaders in their own right. What would you say are some really key things you need to get right to become a good leader, whether it's commercially or, you know, or just really get ahead? Yeah, look, I'm a real, um, and, I, and I'm not, when I look back at my time, particularly as Premier, I, in, in many ways, you know, there's decisions I made that I wouldn't make again, that I would look back on and go, you know what, I got that wrong and I should have done something different. Um, and I think I'm a big subscriber and fan of um, Roland Heifetz and Marty Linsky, who are two they're Harvard professors, but um, they've written uh, quite probably my favourite books on leadership. Um, one's called Leadership on the Line and the other one's called Leadership Without Easy Answers. And they talk about um, a, a range of things, uh, but at the core of their work is this idea of um, adaptive challenges um, and technical challenges. And if you like, technical challenges of leadership are the things that we can solve because we know how to do them. We just have to apply more resource or do more of something or do whatever. But adaptive challenges are really the thing that you actually have to change people's hearts and minds and behaviours as a leader to really get the change you want to get to change. And that's a lot harder than a technical change. And they make this kind of identification and they talk about, well, what are the aspects of adaptive leadership or leading people through adaptive change? Um, one, of the things, one of the things I really like about their work is they talk about um, the dance floor, if you like, of leadership and that you need to both be almost simultaneously on the dance floor, that is you're interacting and having an impact on people, but also on the balcony, being able to look and see what's actually going on. And you might remember your old uh, nightclub days, Craig, you never know when you walked into the nightclub and you look across the room and you think, well, I don't know who's here and who I you know, want to go and mingle with or chat up or do whatever. Yeah. Um, and, but you've got to be on the dance floor if you want to interact with in the nightclub, but getting up on the balcony and seeing who's who and where's where and what's happening and really understanding the lay of the land is kind of a nice analogy, I think, that Linsky and, and Heifetz really get into. 
Mm. And, and it's one of the things that I've always really consciously tried to do. And the more pressure you're under, and obviously that situation I described to you was I felt a lot of pressure. Mm. Um, I think the less able you are to do that, uh, and therefore being able to kind of be mindful is what my wife would call it, mindful about your leadership practice, observing what's going on while and, and withholding your reaction or while you're reacting to it is really important. And there's some of the things I probably didn't do well enough as Premier, but I, um, I'm probably, I hope I'm better at practising them now in my leadership sort of practice, yeah. Mm. And there's one thing that just popped up in your conversation where you mentioned that you had different philosophies or beliefs and debating nearly with your own family about something there. It was that when you are a premier and the face of, you know, your party effectively, is there many times that you would have to, like, sell, sell the message of what your party is but at, at crosses your say your moral compass like you actually in your own right don't believe it what the party is i would have said as as a minister sometimes i needed to do that sometimes you need to go with the cabinet decision that you might have argued against in cabinet um, but cabinet solidarity is one of the key parts of our westminster system of government so you are required then if you want to continue to be part of the cabinet to support the decision that the cabinet made but as Premier, generally how cabinets work is Premiers and Treasurers tend to get their way. Um, and, uh, yeah, people might argue and ultimately, you know, uh, change Premiers and Treasurers' minds and, you know, there might be compromise around the cabinet table. But generally, when I was Premier, if I felt strongly about something that I wanted to do or strongly about how we should achieve or approach something, um, that generally... I had, in fact, I can't think of a time I didn't have the support of my cabinet to do that, essentially. Sadly, I guess, or not sadly, um, again, we're creatures of history. The sorts of decisions I really wanted to be making in my time as Premier were about, you know, investing for the future of Tasmania. And we did a lot of that. We invested about $400 million in um, irrigation assets that are now really driving... Um, innovative agribusiness and high-end, high-value agribusiness in wine and meat and dairy and fruit and so on in Tasmania. And we've got a real reputation for that now. Um, we invested, we worked very closely with the Rudd government to have, because um, it was our plan, basically, the National Broadband Network. So Tasmania is really the only place that got the full fibre to the net, fibre to the house um, uh, sort of technology right across the state and very happy with that outcome. Uh, invested some $200 million in what I call child and family centres, which were providing services for young mums in most disadvantaged circumstances deep in their suburb. And that's, I can see that now playing out in the data in our literacy and numeracy rates in more disadvantaged suburbs in grade three, grade five, grade seven, you know, it's starting to play out as a real positive. So we got some good things done, but a lot of my energies were spent dealing with the crap, <laughs> to be honest, the, the really the scandal, the financial challenges, all of that stuff, which really ends up soaking your energy or sapping your energy, I, I think, as a leader. And, and largely that's, you know, after three years, I decided to stand down because I hadn't seen my family for seven years and I've got, mm -hmm. I had young kids at the time, they're older now, of course, um, but I've managed to spend some time with them. So I made that choice, really. I made a choice to, that I really, I was exhausted 
but also my seven, my son, who was seven at the time that I stood down, is now 16. Um, you know, really, I'd been minister and premier his whole life, and I'd been mm. largely absent his whole life up until his seventh birthday. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah, I decided to make a change. All right. So let's move into tech and innovation. What are you passionate about in that space? Is it, um, yeah, I'd like to hear a bit about that because it can be so diverse. Like you hear about Silicon Valley stuff, then you hear about AI, you hear all these amazing things, the Tesla stuff of the world. Like what's your passion in that space? Well, I guess if I'm, pa- all right, you know, like anyone in business these days, I like to make money. So that's always, <laughs> but, but my passion really is about technologies that uh, can improve people's lives. And I think you've named a few there. Uh, if used in the right way, and you know, your Tesla stuff is a great example of that. I also think artificial intelligence can be a great example of that. It also can be have a negative impact on our lives in some respects. Um, I've been involved, the companies I've been involved in have been enterprise mobility software uh, companies, and we really, um, we just sold that company. We built it over sort of six or seven years and sold it last year to a ASX listed company in Australia. I'm chairman of a company called Frond, which is actually a New Zealand headquartered company, but um, is located in Melbourne, Sydney, Auckland and Wellington and is a, what you would have called a systems integrator type company in the past. I'm on the board of an aged care software uh, company called Imprevo, which is is really helping the aged care sector to provide better care um, through better rostering and better um, access to skills that they need and, and so on. And so I'm pretty um, passionate about that. Um, I'm also just, uh, I'll stand up and show you my logo here. Hold on. Here it is. No, another one. That's DB. Uh, Swisher Hoops Academy is this little basketball tech startup that I've got just got going over the last sort of three or four months. And, and I'm really interested in sports technology Mm. Um, there's some amazing stuff going around. I don't know if you've come across Home Court. Mark Cuban, who also owns the Dallas Mavericks, owns this piece of technology. And it's a really incredible bit of artificial intelligence that basically any kid with a smartphone can put up 100 shots and the, the technology will uh, measure every shot record the arc of the shot, record the release of the shot. And, you know, for a subscription of five ninety nine, the kid can basically get the access to the uh, most, um, you know, perfect kind of artificial intelligence coaching um, to improve their shot. And I'm really interested in that sort, of, uh, that sort of stuff as well. And I think there's big space there. I'm particularly interested in... Um, Augmented reality too. Um, augmented reality being kind of the overlay of think Pokemon Go, you know, all the kids out playing Pokemon. But really, you know, I think it's going to be extremely disruptive and powerful for big industry where you can create digital twins and you can actually visualize the problems going on in a factory or in a plant, for example. But it can also be used in sports technology or in navigation or in property sales or in I'm seeing some stuff emerge in the fitness industry and a whole range of um, things like that. In fact, I use a little AR app in my own gym when I want to, you know, get my technique from a bench press right or whatever. I can set it up so that my camera will will film me doing it and then give me coaching tips on, you know, what I should be doing better and what I'm not doing right and all of those sorts of things. So I, I'm a bit of a um, 
tech junkie nerd. I like mm. to get all the latest kit and test, and I like to test it all out and fiddle around with it. And I've got to say, during um, this lockdown period, I've been kind of back on the tools, building websites and building online courses mm. and things I really haven't done for sort of 15, 20 years. But, um, so is that what they call gamification? Is that what you're saying there? Gamification really more refers to um, when you want to engage someone in your app or what have you, you know, giving them badges and giving them um, little mini challenges to uh, complete, which, which of course ups their engagement with your app or your system, which allows you to collect more data off them, which allows you to refine and, uh, I guess, iterate um, the innovation to match your customers' uh, needs and so on as well. So, yeah, that's it. that intersection of gamification, um, big data, uh, AR, AI. Um, yeah, that's really the, the place that I think um, the world is headed. And increasingly, too, I think, you know, in, a, in an odd way, COVID has accelerated, I think, pushed us sort of five years into the future in a five-month period because out of necessity, people have had to start to go, right, how can I make technology work for me from home and, mm. and so on? And I think, I think there's some big challenges coming for us in our economies. You know, I think commercial property is going to be a big challenge. Um, there'll be a collapse in the per- commercial property market because I think a lot of people have worked out that actually, you know what, I can work from home. I can send half my workers home and work from home. I can, you know, my, the tech company I talked about, Frond, you know, we're 150-odd people. We'll never go back to floor space of 150 people. We'll have hot desking. We'll have working from home, telecommuting, the whole lot. Mm. Yeah, like those WeWork sort of places might become a lot more popular where you can, yeah. Um, Yeah, interesting um, conversation. Like, There's so many different opportunities in tech. You know, there's uh, plenty to play. You talk about startup. If you've got a good idea um, in the tech space, how do you go about raising funds or do you self-fund projects or do you go on to... Um, a few different things we've done um, with our little um, Swisher um, basketball sort of sports tech startup. We're self-funding it at the moment, but we recognise we're really doing that because we think there's real potential value in it. So we want to hang on to as much, this, me and two other partners, we want to hang on to as much of it as we possibly can until we have to take other people's money, which we inevitably, if we want to get it to the place we want to, want it to go, we inevitably will have to have um, some either debt or equity. And my preference is always equity because I don't like lots of debt. Um, mm. But um, uh, finding the right people to invest. I mean, I know, and I've probably done about in the last nine years, been involved either as a director or chair or co-founder in about five or six capital raisings. There's a lot of money out there for the right ideas is what I would say. There's a lot of people in Australia now with uh, self-managed super funds. Most of those self-managed super funds are getting financial advice um, you know, from their financial advisor saying, you know, put 80% in blue chip stocks or whatever. But they're all saying to them, put 5% in high risk, you know, potential high return. And if you can find those people, you can get networks with those people. It's, you know... Um, you know, we've raised in those five or six raisings, we've raised between five and $14 million um, for various sort of startups. And I'm no particular expert at this. Obviously, you know, I work with advisors who bring the expertise. 
Um, but I, with the right idea and the right team, and that's the real critical thing, um, the right front people, particularly who are talking to investors, I think the money's out there. And I think um, uh, you can go down that route. The question is how soon you want to go down that route. Mm. And there's nothing like having some runs on the board, some customer growth uh, to go to customers and say, look, uh, to, to sorry, investors, potential investors and say, look, here's the customer growth we've achieved you know, in our first year. Um, with your million dollars, <laughs> here's what we'll achieve in our second and third year, if you like. Yeah, I've, I've been, I've invested in a few private companies. Uh, one was a bit more of a startup in the plant-based food industry um, and also in an education company as well. So sort of have had a bit of exposure to that sort of space um, as well. So, yeah, there is money out there because people have to put their money somewhere and leaving it in a bank is not probably the best place at the moment. And, um, yeah, so... I mean, there's a lot of risk everywhere at the moment, I would have thought, but there's very, uh, practically zero interest in your bank account. Um, I suspect the ASX is going to go up and down a fair bit. Um, property, you know, I think there's a lot of people who've got money probably in property that um, are going to have to get out of it because they're probably negatively geared and um, aren't getting, aren't um, covering their mortgages and what have you. But there's still a lot of wealth out there. Um, look at, yeah, looking for a bit of a riskier journey for part of their wealth. Um, so, so yeah, I, I've been fortunate that a number of my business partners have been experienced in this and, um, have taught me along the way. Um, I've, I've also learned along the way finding it's not just the money that people bring, um, finding the right investors, either the, the ones who will just be quiet and <laughs> let you get on with it or the ones who actually can bring something you know, in terms of networks, knowledge, you know, um, people, whatever they can bring, uh, mm. other than just their cash, uh, are worth their weight in gold as well. Yeah, I, I just recently interviewed a guy who won The Apprentice in the UK, and it was probably the equivalent of 400,000 US, oh, 400,000 Aussie dollars, but his yeah. mentor was Lord Sugar, and he said in the interview, you know, <laughs> that you, you, at the time, as a you know person in their young twenties, the money shines. But he said the mentor, the mentorship, and the connections of that has just been priceless. Yeah, someone like him being able to pick up the phone for you to anywhere to anyone um, is really valuable as well. Yeah. Totally. And um, I will ask a question around, I did say I was going to ask this question because you've been politics, you've been commercial and you sort of understand, you know, that nearly in some ways decisions that you've got to make for political stuff will affect commercial stuff and, and vice versa. And um, I always look at things and look at second and third tier consequences. So, for example, if you want to lose weight, um, uh, or if you gain weight or, or you eat something bad, like let's say you have wine or an, a cake and someone like that, that fills you with joy at the time. The second and third tier consequences are you gain weight, uh, your blood pressure, your blood sugar goes up, et cetera, et cetera. So political decisions sometimes, like the, a classic example is, say, in Melbourne at the moment, um, the economy's very much locked down and... You've got businesses that are struggling and then you've got the health um, decision on the other side of it. Where, where does the balance have to really fit with a situation like that, do you see? 
and you've been in both sides. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, I think you're really highlighting something that I, that dawned on me after I left politics. Almost every decision in politics is 51-49. You know, like you, there's so many kind of what I call shit sandwich decisions. You know, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. And you can see both sides of every argument. So my take on it was it was always really important to have the debates internally, have the discussions, take the advice, take all the real, you know, widest possible views that you can get access to and labour over the decision. But once you've made the decision in politics, this is one of the, I think, weaknesses of our adversarial system is you have to lock in behind that decision. So you can't go into the parliament and say, yeah, this decision was 51-49 and I can see your point of view. <laughs> you actually have to go in and back your decision hard. And even in the face of new evidence and data that you might convince you to change your mind, it's very hard in politics without being labelled a backflipper or what have you to actually change as well. Whereas I, I, it really dawned on me when I first left politics, I was invited to chair a, a startup. The company had raised $5 million in capital out building this, um, this uh, enterprise mobility uh, platform. And... I was always amazed that when we got something wrong as a board or when we tested something in the market, got new evidence to show, you know what, that's the wrong direction to go. Let's pivot and go this way. We never spent any time around the board table, you know, wringing our hands about how we're going to defend that last decision, which is what you really have to do in government. And I got onto a book by Eric Rees called The Lean Startup. I don't know if you've read it. Some of your listeners will have. It's the Bible as far as, it's a bit old, out of date now, but it's the Bible as far as I'm concerned about the lean startup. How do you do a startup in the quickest, leanest possible way? Um, and I, when I read it, it kind of was a big, um, you know, moment for me because he talks about, you know, minimum viable function sets, minimum viable products, inflict them on your customers, iter you know, collect the data, iterate wildly, improve wildly, you know, that sort of thing, pivot or persevere, he talks about culture-constrained strategy. So the more open your culture, the more strategic options you've got available. And I read this book and it dawned on me like, this is the exact opposite of how government works. So <laughs> the, the two cultures, the way government works, we never inflict anything until we've de-risked it and written you know, three years of research and data and all the evidence and all of that. And that makes a sl government slow to make decisions and very risk averse. Now, you might want your governments to be risk averse because you don't want them risking your taxpayers' money too much. Mm. But on the other side, a startup tech company is completely the opposite of that. We'll take your shareholders' money, we'll go and do something, see what happens, and then work out where to go from there sort of thing. Mm. Um, the cultures are almost the exact opposite of one another. And, and that was kind of, yeah, it took me took me a little while to work that out because as chair, I was start really still behaving as I'm in government, but the, the, the two, the two cultures are very different. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of, in, in my view, that gives me a, well, it gives me a, a different view in the world because I can see kind of both sides of the equation and, and try to nut things out um, using both sets of tools effectively. Mm, yeah, because I mean, for me, commercially, the entire time, I make a bad decision. I'm, I'm potentially bankrupt, but you can make a bad decision in politics and you get bashed in the media for a few days and it's on to the next thing. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you are, you are working with other people's money. And it was the other challenge uh, working with some salespeople in one of the companies I'm on the, 
on the board of and they're trying to sell to government. I, was, I did say to them, you know, if you're trying to sell to government, don't go in there preaching that this, the bottom line, you, you know, will be massively improved if you adopt our software. That might be a, that might be a business case you pitch to a commercial entity because we care about bottom line. Governments care more about um, how effectively they can do things and how more easily and less bureaucratically they can do things. So they go in and sell, you know, the platform or whatever you're selling um, by pushing the buttons in government about not so much about cost saving, but about um, effectiveness and, um, and um, doing things more easily. Mm. And, and with that, we'll just completely change gears from that uh, conversation. But um, Tassie, for me, I, I just find it, you know, beautiful food, beautiful scenery. Um, uh, one of the projects I did work on in, well, I was working for a company called Sinclair Knight Mertz. Um, I actually did an asset management project where I pretty much had five councils and I had to drive every single sealed and gravel road in in those councils so I got to see places in Tassie on gravel roads that you know just no one's ever really been to it's a tourist haven but you've got probably one of the most unique uh, tourist attractions in the world, the Mona. Um, for the people that haven't been to Tassie, like, yeah, talk a bit about Tassie's tourism and what it has to offer because I think it's an amazing place. I think Tasmania has changed gradually over the last 25 years or the 25 years leading up to Mona where we realised that people value clean water, value clean air, value the climate, you know, and you know the Tasmanian joke. And I know this myself. And 20 years ago when I was on in working in the mainland, I would get two-headed jokes everywhere I went as a Tasmanian. Now, pretty much everywhere I go, I say from Tasmania, everybody says, oh, I went there last year. Oh, I really want to get there. Oh, I love that place. Oh, if only I could find work there, I'd move there. You know, there's a, and I think you watch, you know, it's really interesting talking to some real estate mates just at the gym today. And they're saying the residential property market in Tasmania right now is going ballistic in full growth mode. And you think, how does this make sense? Well, it makes sense because, you know, when you're sweltering through, you know, seven 40 degree days in the summer and the half of Australia is on fire and you look at Tasmania and go 25 degrees and fine again, you go, oh, that sounds nice. And then when you're living in a Petri dish of Sydney or Melbourne or what have you, and we're living through these difficult times and you see Tasmania hasn't had a case for 67 days, you go, oh, that looks nice. And I I think there's still a challenge in Tasmania, particularly for sort of mid-career professionals um, to find a career path here. It's very hard because a lot of that work isn't here. Um, And a lot of people like myself, you know, I live here and love it, but I'm on a plane a lot going to do work as well. Um, But I think the food, the wine, the air, the climate, um, the... All of that stuff has become what used to almost be a negative for Tasmania has become this extraordinary positive. And what Mona did 10 years ago, and one of the last things I did as Premier before I stepped down was um, open Mona um, and launched the Mona FOMA, the original uh, music festival that went with Mona that then Dark Mofo stemmed out of and so on. Um, It created, all of that stuff was happening in Tasmania that what Mona did was create a massive lightning rod, put it on the front page of the New York Times and say, check this thing out. Mm. At Mona, for those who haven't been there, is uh, we've taken our kids all over the world. 
we go to every art gallery, every, you know, take, try to culture them up a bit, which is nearly impossible. Uh, but uh, they all, whenever we go to Mona, they say, you know, or wherever we go around the world, they say, oh, it's not as good as Mona, is it? Yeah. No, it's not. No. Mona is the most extraordinary thing. $120 million building um, with housing over $100 million, the largest or most significant private art collection in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, all on the banks of the Derwent, built into this extraordinary building that's like an underground sort of lair, Batman lair, <laughs> um, almost. So if you haven't been there, it's worth coming to Tasmania for Mona alone, but actually finding all the other stuff around Mona um, that it has, it's created a real pipeline of activity for, um, is worth staying for. Mm, absolutely i would uh fully concur with that like it's uh i've been there maybe five or six times my family is still in tassie and i i find it just a an amazing experience every time i go there and you're right i have been to all the new york art galleries and the ones in paris and mona's better like it is truly amazing um and what about at the moment there's a big push from tassie for an afl team do you see it being a, a viable option in tasmania well you you're probably asking the wrong bloke i have to admit craig um <laughs> and as a politician you can never admit this i'm not an afl fan right so i do follow north melbourne when i was a kid i was in melbourne having an operation on my foot and the nurses took us out from the royal children melbourne children's hospital to go to arden street North Melbourne beat um, Footscray that day. And I was a North Melbourne fan. And it was 77 or thereabouts that they were winning premierships at that time and so on. So I'm a North Melbourne fan. And they play some games here in Hobart. And obviously, we've got the Hawthorne stuff as well. But to be honest, one of the great joys of leaving politics um, was that I could go back to the sports that I really love, which are basketball and, to a lesser extent, um, round ball football. But really, basketball is my passion. And because it's also my 16-year-old son's passion, who is six foot five and an, an absolute beast. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's a family affair. We're very passionate about our basketball. Um, so I don't pay much attention. But um, one of the things that I worked really hard for over the last four years, as I said, was to get an NBL team back here, um, including being president of the Hobart Chargers um, for the last three years and winning a national championship through that club and so on. Um, I, one of the things I really wanted to do was to show show that it can be done um, if you get the ground up um, community support. And by that I mean, and this is what I think the AFL's done very poorly in Tasmania for the last 25 years. By that I mean to, you've got to go school by school, town by town, club by club, kid by kid to build a club. You know, we had a the Hobart Chargers, when I took over, we had average crowds of 300 coming to games. By the end of 2018, we had average crowds of 2,500. And for one preliminary final, we filled out the deck with 4,500 people. Mm. And we did it because we went into the schools, we had our players in the community, we, had, we really tried to touch every life we could with basketball. And you do that and people then come. In AFL terms, they've never done that. It's interesting. My son's six foot five and a you know, monster, and he never once got the opportunity to play. He went to public schools all his life, and he never once got the opportunity to play AFL, but he had plenty of chances to play basketball. And I think the AFL, in lots of ways, have abandoned their grassroots for the, 
for the professional and sort of TV rights stuff, they've let the grassroots go. And I think that makes it very difficult to finance a, a club. And frankly, the way the AFL treats Tasmania, I don't think will, not in my lifetime, is what I'd say. But when I say that, people get very grumpy with me because they're all <laughs> AFL fans. And I kind of say it with a wry grin because I couldn't care less. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, what we're going to show, what I actually believe, quite honestly, is that within five years, basketball will be the most played and watched sport in the whole of Tasmania. Mm. Um, we're just seeing this massive growth at local club level, the Ben Simmons factor. When the NBL's in town, it's just going to go mental basketball here. Yeah, and I do just back on the old two-headed Tasmanian thing. I, I copped that when I moved to South Australia and I used to say, yep, I might have two heads, but you guys have got one eye. Like They were like absolute <laughs> one-eyed, passionate. Well, I always like to say when Victorians tell me, oh, it's cold down there, I said, yeah, but at least it's cold and sunny, not cold and bloody miserable like it is here. <laughs> All right. At the end of every episode, we always ask a few rapid-fire questions that don't necessarily have to have rapid-fire answers. I'll what try. Would... Ex-politicians aren't very good at rapid fire in case you haven't noticed. <laughs> what about, and you did mention that, um, you, so it may even have already been answered, but is there a book that someone should read that could impact their life? Oh, there's so many of them. I've got a bookshelf back here that, um, uh, you know, so many books have, have changed my uh, life. But I probably, if you're really looking for business and leadership, then I'd go uh, Roland Heifetz's uh, Leadership on the Line. If you're looking for kind of life-changing, I actually love uh, The Audacity of Hope by Barack Obama. Um, what about the best bit of advice you've ever received? Well, John Button, who I mentioned before, said to me, um, son, if, you know, you've got all these worries in the world. There are two spheres in your life. There's your um, sphere of influence. It's about this big, all the things you can control and influence about the world. Your sphere of concern, which is about this big, all the things that you're worried about and would like to change about the world. He said, do not waste one second on your sphere of concern. Spend all that energy expanding your sphere of influence. Mm. Uh, hence, get yourself elected, become CEO, go on, or do whatever it is to expand your influence. And that, of course, what he didn't tell me is your sphere of concern uh, increases exponentially as well when you do that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but I thought it was a great bit of advice. And I... I spent a lot of time after that just not not losing sleep about the things I wanted to change, thinking about how I could actually grow my influence to change them. Mm, very good advice. What about the worst bit of advice you've ever received? Oh, geez, that's a really tough one. Uh, I don't know. I'll have to pass on that one, I think. <laughs> Occasionally, I like to quote uh, Sen Siu, which is... Uh, if you wait by the river long enough, the bodies of your enemies will float by. And I guess the worst bit... The worst decisions I've made in my life, I think, in my work life, were the ones that were influenced by, I don't want to use the word revenge, but influenced by payback. Oh, I can make this decision and that'll hurt that person yeah. or, or that enemy or mm. whatever the case may be. And that is the case in politics. Mm. Um, and they were the worst decisions I ever made. So don't be motivated by that shit. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What about your vision over the next three to five years? Um, you know, you're on boards, you're keynote speaking, you're involved in tech and projects. Um, where do you see it all going? Uh, look, I'm, I'm really um, passionate about a couple of my startups. 
particularly this new sports tech one. Um, I, my, and one of the reasons I got into that was with these two other guys, ex-NBLers, is we're really passionate about the joy that sport can bring for young people and the pathways it can provide for young people. And I think um, that's really what I want to be doing for the next sort of four or five years is building pathways for young people to inspire them to do great things because they love sport. And in this case, it's basketball, but we'll be you know, looking at other stuff as Interesting. well. Interesting. Looking forward. I coach two under 18 basketball teams and it's Div 2, Div 3. So I'm no great coach, but I love it because I love the relationships with the young men and trying to not just coach them at basketball, but hopefully have a positive influence in their life as well. And where do people find out about you? Is it LinkedIn? Is there a website, your business name? Yeah, so LinkedIn's the best bit and that kind of lists all the different bits and pieces I do. I run some online um, courses under, the, under a business name called uh, Policy and Politics. Um, our new startup is called Swisher Hoops Academy. Um, and I'm involved with a couple of other companies and bits and pieces. Um, you'll usually find me uh, at a basketball court on any given night of the week, either driving my son to training, coaching kids, watching games, you know, doing community uh, duties, volunteer duties or whatever for the local club. Um, and that's really, you know, my personal passion. And of course, you know, my family, I've got a you know, 16 year old son and a 14 year old daughter and my wife, who really is embarking on her career. And I'm really, um, I'm really here to, she followed my career around for 10, 15 years. Mm. Uh, and in a lot of ways that had to give up stuff because of what I did. She's mm. now just recently completed a PhD in mindfulness-based stress reduction. So she's mm. Dr. Bartlett and she's embarking on a new kind of research career. And I'm really here to um, cook dinner and, make, and uh, keep the house tidy so she can do that. Yeah, uh, very. Yeah, I mean, that's a big area, mindfulness and self-care. And, you know, that's uh, an area I've spent a bit of time in over my journey. So I think that's got some exciting things. You can see professional sporting clubs really adopting a lot more mindfulness at the moment. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm really interested in the intersection of that and, um, and sport particularly. And you see, if you watch The Last Dance, uh, the Michael Jordan documentary, there's actually um, quite a bit of interesting stuff that Jordan talks about in there, which he doesn't use the term mindfulness, but he's actually talking about mindfulness before it became trendy, really. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I know my wife, Larissa's um, had conversations with um, like the sports psychologist at the Cleveland Cavaliers and people like that. And they're really interested in um, that, um, that mindfulness approach. Yeah. Mm. Very good. And from me, look, I um, got introduced to you by a common friend and, um, you know, I'm glad you actually were able to jump on. I know you're a busy man, obviously lots of projects going on. So, um, yeah, thank you for taking the time for jumping on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Craig. I've really enjoyed it and I really wish you all the best with um, the work you're doing. Um, I'd encourage people to go and have a look at your website and have a look at what you're um, what you're working on because I think it's really inspirational and um, some great stuff so I wish you all the best mate Wow, what an amazing episode with David Bartlett talking all things business uh, technology 
even dived into a little bit of politics and his story around there. There's a lot of key takeaways in that conversation, so I hope you got a lot of value out of it. If you like this week's episode, please make sure that you give us five-star reviews, feedback, share it with all your network because it's really important to be able to get high-quality guests like David, um, so we need that feedback. If you haven't got a copy of my book, you've got one shot, make sure you head across to craigschultz.com. That's just my name.com and get a copy of that book. As I say at the end of every episode, live life with passion and purpose because you've got one shot at life. Go out there and give it your best shot. My name's Craig Schultz and I'm the host of the One Shot Movement podcast.